Well, greetings, church. Good morning. Our dear pastor fell under the weather, and so he reached out to the brothers uh, to step in, and so here we are. <laughs> and just, just as we saw with uh, Ruth and Naomi's steps being ordered by the Lord, so are ours. Amen. Uh, this sermon that you're about to hear, it wasn't planned, but it was in the schedule. It was in God's schedule. But let's pray. Father, we look to you as the sovereign Lord, as the orchestrator of our life. And Lord, we, we trust that you are in complete control. We don't know what tomorrow holds, but you do. Father, we lift up our pastor, Lord, would you be with his spirit, and would you touch him, Lord, and help him to recover? For sheep need a shepherd, and we are missing his presence even now. But thank you for your word that sustains us. Thank you for your spirit and for your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, after all of that... Black Friday spending and Christmas spending, some of us have racked up some bills. Our bills and our sins have this in common, that they put us in someone's debt. Listen to this reflection on bills. You bring me a large file full of bills and you say to me, are these bills against you? I answer, no doubt they are all correct on every item and they might take me a month to examine. You ask me, can I pay them? No, I do not need to try. But do they not trouble you? No, I can make a pillow of them, if that is all, and sleep despite their number and greatness. You're befuddled to think that I should have such a mass of bills and take the matter so coolly. I ask you to take off these bills from the file one by one. And as you do, you will see that they are all paid. There is a red mark at the bottom of every one. Who troubles himself about a bill when it is paid? But do you pay those debts? No, not I. I have not paid a penny. Did you pay a part of them? Not I. I never contributed a rusty cent toward them. Did you offer a payment plan? Nope, not even layaway. Yet you are perfectly easy? Yes, because he who bore my sins in his own body on the tree took all my debts and paid them for me. And now I am dead to those debts. They have no power over me. I am dead to my sins. Christ suffered instead of me. I have nothing to do with them. They are gone as if they had never been committed." End of quote. Now, just to be clear, the bills in this illustration were sins. Amen. So don't bring your bills to church next week <laughs> and continue to pay Sally Mae. This morning, uh, we hope to see in our passage in Romans 8, chapter, Romans 8, verses 1 through 8, the freedom that God gives, not the financial freedom we might be thinking of, but a spiritual freedom. 
As you turn there, the, the author Paul was a devout Jew and a persecutor of the church. He, like us, had no intention of following Christ. But the Father had every intention of using him to bring the gospel to the Gentiles and to write instructions to the church so that we would know our purpose, position, and privileges. Paul takes the vast knowledge of the Bible, including the Torah, the history of God's people, the judgment to come pronounced from the prophets, and his personal encounter with the Lord Jesus himself, and he pens what may be one of his finest of his 13 letters. Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, said, Romans is a worthy, not only that every Christian should know it word by word and by heart, but occupy himself with it every day. As the daily bread of the soul, it can never be read or pondered too much. And the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes. Romans formalizes the basic doctrines of the church and the implications of the gospel. This book is a chief part of the New Testament, and Romans 8 is arguably the best chapter, which focuses on the work of the Holy Spirit. However, today we're just looking at a small part, a few verses. So imagine stepping into a new hit series, but watching just one show. You'd want to see the entire series. You want to know the beginning and the end. Well, I highly recommend grabbing a friend after church and reading through the book of Romans. Perhaps alternate chapter by chapter so that you can grasp the weight of this critical letter. If you have found it in your Bible, I'll be reading from the ESV. And you'll also be helped by keeping it open as we refer to it. Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The main point of this passage is that lawbreakers are set free by God when he condemns sin through his son. And the evidence is shown by their new walk and meditation. I have three points. God is mindful of the saints. Point one, God minds our business, point two, and the flesh and the spirit have a mind of their own, point three. So let's begin in verse one. God is mindful of the saints. In verse one, we read that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
And this is the first blessing that we read of in this chapter. The first question we must answer is, what is the therefore, therefore? Paul sums up what he has been arguing in chapters 1 through 3 of Romans, which is why you need to go back and read it, which spoke of God's holiness in condemning sin and our need for salvation. Chapter 1 tells us our foolish hearts were darkened, being filled with all manner of evil. Chapter 2 explains God's condemnation is just and right because of God's law. But our verse 1 also summarizes Romans chapters 3 through 5, which explains the designs of God's grace in justifying sinners and the way of salvation. Paul explains in Romans 7 that we are no longer under the law. So based on all that God has revealed through these first seven chapters, he concludes, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We were not born children of God, but children of Adam. And in Adam, all die. We are all God's creation, but we are not all God's children. Romans 8.1 is similar to Romans 5.1, which reads, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This verse states positively the same truth that we have in Romans 8.1, which is that we have been justified by the work of Christ at the cross by faith. By justifying, justify, I mean not only to declare righteous and to make us innocent, but also to make us righteous. So it's also innocence plus righteousness. It's not enough just to be innocent. You positively need righteousness. Notice here who specifically is justified. Is it those who simply attend church? No, our text says only those who are in Christ Jesus. How this salvation is accomplished will be explained in verse 3 in a moment. But what a blessing this first verse reveals that all who have broken God's commands and are deserving of his wrath would have this verdict, not guilty, no condemnation. Even though we are truly guilty and truly worthy of condemnation, my how God is mindful of those who come to him by faith. Verse 2 begins to unfold for us how God the Holy One could justify a sin for you and me. Is the reason we aren't condemned because we're really good? Because we've done our best? Never killed anyone? No, but verse 2 tells us why. It is because the law of the spirit of life has set you free. In Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You will not find one reason about yourself for why God would approve of you. We see for the saints that there is justification and freedom from condemnation. Notice that the cause of our salvation is the spirits liberating us. This is the second blessing that we read of. This verse begins with for, or in some other translations, because. This shows us that the first blessing of no condemnation comes as a result of the second blessing 
the Spirit's powerful work in setting us free. So salvation is provided to you who believe, but it is not because of your performance. Remember Romans 6, describing your old self. It was dead in sin, but it is not because of your performance. We were slaves of unrighteousness, impurity, and lawlessness. So don't imagine for a moment that you just came to your senses one day and came to Christ. You were separated from God from birth. Amen. You weren't just drowning in an ocean of sin, but you were at the bottom of this ocean. The pulse had flatlined. You were spiritually dead dead. If it had not been for the Holy Spirit pouring out God's love into our hearts and circumcising them, you would still be condemned and enslaved to sin. We tend to only focus on what Christ has done in securing our salvation. But this verse shows us the benefits of the cross are applied to us by the Spirit's work. It is a Trinitarian work in the work of salvation. We are elected by the Father, redeemed by the Son, and renewed by the Holy Spirit. Because the Spirit of life has set us free, we are no longer looking to the law for our justification. God gave us the law, but it wasn't so that we would now idolize the law. The law was a tutor. It was to show us our need for Christ, not for us to rely upon for our salvation. The phrase, the law of the spirit of life, is another phrase for the gospel. Only faith in the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus can set us free. Notice again, Paul does not say everybody is set free. No, it is you who are in Christ Jesus. And if we have been set free by Christ, we must now go forth and free the other slaves. And what have you been set free from, as we saw in verse 1? We are free from condemnation. And he adds in verse 2 that we are also free from the law of sin and death. Paul says in Romans chapter 7, verse 5, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members and bore fruit to death. A few verses later, in verse 9, he says, I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came. It came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law plus our sin equals death. But thanks be to God that in Christ we are no longer under the law. Because of this new law, the law of the spirit of life, which is the gospel. Friends, are you trying to free yourself from condemnation by your own performance? By human efforts? Where are you turning to for power? Are we like campers using an emergency radio hand crank when there is an outlet and power nearby? Oh, friend, don't despair. If God could save Saul, the chief of sinners, by the power of his spirit, 
he can save you as well. Paul was astonished that the Galatians were trying to fulfill the law by their obedience. He wrote in Galatians 3.3, Are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are you trying to be perfected by the flesh? Some believe in a universal salvation, as if Christ came to save every individual. Yet we see in verses 1 and 2 the phrase, in Christ Jesus meaning that there is condemnation for everyone else outside of Christ. God had his mind set on a particular group of individuals, and it is to those that are in Christ Jesus. God has one thing in mind, receiving glory for himself through the salvation of those who are in Christ. The Lord Jesus traveled from heaven to earth, to the cross, and to the grave, and back to his father. And you can count on this, that at his second coming, he will not return to his father without his elect people, without his bride for which he came. By the power of his spirit, he saves those who believe by removing their condemnation. So we see how God is mindful in his care for the saints. We will also see in point two that God minds our business. Verse 3 says, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. How is it that God justifies and liberates us? This verse tells us by sending and condemning his own Son. He did what the law could never do, which is to justify. No one who tries to live according to the law will be justified in God's sight. Because of indwelling sin and the weakness of our fallen nature, God had to send his son to give us his indwelling spirit. Aren't you glad that he doesn't mind his own business, but he enters into our affairs? That's what we just celebrated yesterday. God coming into our our earth and becoming a man, leaving glory. God didn't just stick his nose into our business, but he put his son's neck on the line. He stuck his son into our mess. Jesus became so entangled with us that he took our blame. He became our fall guy. Now, in Hollywood, when you see all those amazing stunts, that's not the actor or actress performing them. Typically, it is a stunt person who takes all of the falls and the bruises and the broken broken bones. And so it is with us that we have a substitute who bore the wrath of God on our behalf. No one needs to face the Father's condemnation when we have a substitute. The law could save us if we could keep it. But because we are lawbreakers, we need a substitute. And how is Christ the perfect sacrifice for sins? Look at verse 3 again. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh, meaning through incarnation. He was really human at the same time, sinless. Jesus came for sin meaning that he was a sin offering. 
that he might make an atonement for our sin. And because Christ came as a sin offering, he was condemned. He was pronounced guilty. And the punishment for sin was executed in his own body. For the law of sin and death must be satisfied. His death also satisfied the Father's wrath. And how do we know that our debt was really paid, that it was really canceled? Romans 4.25 says, Jesus, who was raised for our justification. The Father raised him from the dead as acceptance of his sacrifice. But why would a sinless Savior sacrifice himself for us? Verse 4 answers this question. We read, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Simply put, he came to impute or to declare righteous those who trust in him. And in God's eyes, they are just. Jesus came for his people to secure not only their justification, but also their sanctification. We see here that God is concerned not just about our standing before him, but also about our obedience. This obedience is based on God's promise in Jeremiah 31, verse 33, where it says, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. God is also concerned about our personal holiness, so he writes his law on our hearts. We are free in Christ from the penalty of sin, but we are not free from keeping the law or holy living. Paul points out two ways to live in verse four and expands on them in this next verse, which leads to our third and final point, the flesh and the spirit have their own mind. Verses five through eight say, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, this third point has four subpoints. First, we will see that we live either according to the flesh or according to the spirit. The word mind here means your disposition or natural bent, the things we ponder. Think of it as mindset. Now, one thing about a mindset is that it is set, All right. just like jello. Have you ever made jello? You pour the powder in a bowl, pour the hot water on it, stir it up, stick it in the fridge, and 30 minutes later, it is set. Whatever shape that bowl had, your jello now has, and you are not going to change it. You can eat it, maybe that's how you change it. Have you ever tried convincing someone whose mind was set of an alternative way of thinking? 
But despite your logic, despite you presenting the consequences, their mind was made up, and there was no convincing them. Those who live according to the flesh, which is what Paul is talking about here, have their mind set on the things of the flesh. What exactly is living according to the flesh? Well, flesh comes from the Greek word sarx, which is different from a term referring to the body or the flesh. So the flesh isn't sinful. Jesus took on flesh, Amen. right? When God made man, he said, it is good. Amen. So we're not talking about something that is sinful. But when the term sarx, when it's used for flesh, we're talking about the sinful nature. We're talking about the works of the flesh. So it's the bodily uh, appetites. Flesh here refers to our fallen natures. So who will fulfill God's law and his demands that verse 4 mentioned? Paul says also that those who are led by the Spirit He's describing the results of being a child of Adam and having a corrupt human nature. Sinful man lives the way he does because of the way he thinks. Romans 3 tells us that man is completely ruined, which includes his understanding, his desires, all from his body, from his throat, his lips, down to his feet. There is no goodness, just misery. Jeremiah puts it this way in chapter 13, verse 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. And you can see how Paul uses his vast knowledge of the Old Testament to bring about our New Testament theology and understanding. Theologians call this total depravity or complete depravity. We sin not because of our upbringing or as a learned behavior. And Adam proved this Amen. because he didn't grow up in the rough streets right. of paradise. Right. He lived in paradise and became hardened, a hardened sinner against a holy, good, and just God. Amen. We sin not just because of a sinful pattern of thinking, which is partly true, but we sin because we are sinners. We sin because of who we are, because of our mindset. We set our minds on the things of the flesh and it's natural to us, as natural as breathing and as drinking water and everybody's doing it. Not one member of mankind has been unaffected by the sinful nature. Our will, our thoughts, our emotions, have all been poisoned. Nutritionists have warned us that we are what we eat. And after yesterday's feast, some of us are in trouble because what was spread on the table may lead to a spread of our waistlines. But Paul says here in verse five, not that you are what you eat, but you are what you think. Just as a diet feeds and supplies the building blocks of our body, so each thought serves to make up and form our mindset. 
No one may be able to look at you and determine whether or not you're a Christian, but they can certainly examine your lifestyle. They can look at your behavior, your words, your actions, your social media posts. All of this reveals what you've been calculating in your mind. And your mindset reveals who you are today. And who you are today is who you will be in the future. Because it is set outside of Christ. Jesus puts it this way, you will know a tree by its fruit. Now in a dog fight, whichever dog you feed the most will win. However, Paul isn't talking here, when he talks about the spirit and the flesh, he's not talking about an inward battle, but he is stating facts about these two natures and the very different paths they take. John the Apostle puts it this way in Revelation 22.10. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. If you are a Christian here today, your desires are what the Spirit desires. The Spirit desires all those things that please the Father, namely to love above all else, to glorify Christ, to show us Christ, and to form Christ in us. Friends, is that your desire? Would anyone characterize you as having these desires? That's what we seek to do as members of Temple Hills Baptist Church, to affirm one another's faith and to encourage it all the more. You see, in Christ, the Christian is brand new, a new creation, forgiven, set free, strengthened with resurrection power by the Holy Spirit. To walk in the flesh, a Christian would have to break the routine of reading scripture, praying with the saints, gathering with the saints, ignoring the counsel and encouragement of their fellow church members, disobeying one's own conscience that has been trained by the word of God, and resisting the promptings of the Holy Spirit. All the help and the warning signs that God gives us. The Lord has put up so many walls and barriers to protect us from evil that we have to work at sin. Secondly, not only does our mindset affect how we live today, but verse 6 shows us it has eternal consequences. It reads, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. The mindset on the flesh leads to a life that is presently separated from God because it is alienated from him. There is a chasm so wide between a sinner and a holy God because it is alienated from him. And this chasm continues into all eternity. God and the sinner are like two parallel lines. They will never meet unless there's Christmas unless there's the incarnation. For the flesh-dominated life leads only to death for the child of Adam. In great contrast, the spirit-dominated life leads to life and peace, 
Because in Christ, and only in Christ, have God and the sinner been reconciled. They are alive to God, alert to spiritual realities. They thirst for God as the deer pants for water. Also, they have peace with God, peace and harmony within themselves, peace with their church members and friends and neighbors. And when you meet a child of God, you know it. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Thirdly, our mindset reveals our basic attitudes toward God. For the mind, verse 7, that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Hostility towards God is a deep-seated hatred and animosity against him, which is why this mindset leads to death. In John Bunyan's book, Pilgrim, Pilgrim's Progress, the devil says to Christian, right before the epic battle, I am an enemy of this prince. I hate his person, his laws, and his people, end of quote. This hostile mind is shared by all the children of the flesh because they are children of the devil and also hate God's name, his kingdom, his word, his son, his spirit, and his glory. In contrast to the regenerate, those who are born again delight in God's law. And are the unregenerate whose minds does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so? This explains why those who live according to the flesh cannot fulfill the law's righteous requirements. Notice the phrase, indeed it cannot. Now a good English teacher will correct a student who asks, can I go to the bathroom? She'll say, yes you can, but you may not go until the others return. Can I go speaks to one's ability. May I go addresses not ability, but permission. Verse 7 says the sinful mind doesn't submit to God's law because it cannot. It does not have the ability. This implies that we are completely helpless to save ourselves because we are totally depraved. Only the unconditional grace of God can save us. Amen. His spirit of life must resurrect our dead spirits and renew us. Because in verse 8 we read, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Fourthly, the sinful, rather, fourthly, those controlled by the sinful nature who are in the flesh, lacking the spirit of God, cannot please him. Why? Because they cannot submit to his law. Whereas the implication, those who live by the spirit want to please God in all that they do more and more. Amen. So let's conclude. The Christian will continue to be holy because Jesus has purchased his holiness. And we will continue this walk according to the spirit until he returns. Friends, Jesus is coming soon. This time he comes not to preach and to perform miracles, but to pronounce his final judgment and to usher in a new kingdom. The clouds will be 
departed, sins will be punished or pardoned. And for those of us who wrestle with sin, we can't wait for this fight to be over and to be forever set free. Until he returns, we continue to remember his death and celebrate his birth. You can either live a life centered on the things of the spirit, leading to life, peace, and true freedom, and eternal life, or life based on the things of the flesh, leading to eternal death, rejection, and condemnation. Obedience is only possible to those in the Holy Spirit. You will never choose a life in the Spirit apart from God saving you. As the hymn writer says, if you wait until you're better, you will never come at all. It took the work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to break our hostility and depravity towards God and to make us righteous by faith. Thank God that his heart is set on his people, which didn't care for him, yet he cared for us. So won't you trust him today? There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the blessings that we read of in this passage, that we are not guilty, though we committed the crimes. Because the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death, we can approach you, we can fellowship with you. The divide and the chasm have been bridged through the work of Christ Jesus. We are saved by works, not our works, by the works of him who came and who rose again. We thank you for this reminder as we celebrated Christmas, and we pray that we would keep our eyes, not on our presence, but to the clouds, looking for uh, our Redeemer to return for us and to deliver us to his kingdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.